Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. Welcome to the show this week. We've got a great one for you. We're going to be talking about a number of different things. Windows 11, we're going to be talking about fake reviews. Got a good Q&A section for you coming up here. And on that note, send us your questions, send us your comments, 503-766-6264 is the phone number, or give us a shout out at One User Friendly on Facebook or Twitter, userfriendlyshow.com is the website. Any of those ways will work to get your questions to us. Today's news is brought to you by Hampton Fitness and Martial Arts in Sherwood, where all your fitness needs can be met in one place for the whole family. Contact us today to schedule your tour of our well-appointed gym and martial arts studio. We offer martial arts classes for adults and children, elite personal training, and general gym access for the do-it-yourselfer. Visit us at hampton-fitness.com. Mention five more to get three months free. So what is in the news today? LinkedIn Breach exposes the data of 92% of LinkedIn users, which... Why Makes me kind of mad. You know, if yeah, you're going to go well, there, yeah, do it yeah. all the way. And uh, yeah, this is one of our latest hacks. So LinkedIn has about 756 million users. And mm-hmm. about 700 million users worth of data was released. It's the second massive breach they've reported. Uh, <sighs> and certainly the biggest one. Jeez. And um, so the information that was released uh, was quite a bit. Email addresses, full names, phone numbers, physical addresses, geolocation records. LinkedIn username and profile URL, personal and professional experience and background, genders, other social <sighs> media accounts and usernames that are linked to it. And this is something that got put online in basically just a giant data file containing all of this information. So if you have a LinkedIn account, it doesn't look like the passwords have necessarily been breached. Uh, they're saying they're not. So changing the password won't really do you any good on this one. Because your information's already out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like kind of cheesed. I'd like to find the person who did that and just slap them. Right. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, that's really rotten. It is. Yeah. So it's uh, it's definitely something to just be aware of and know that that information's out there. And this is one where there's not a lot you can really do to change anything at this point. Breakthrough in 3D scanning leads to 4,500% increase in accuracy. Yeah, so this is dealing with 3D body scans, and what it is, mm-hmm. is it's technology that we've seen for a while. There's online apps that use this that can measure you for clothing using your camera and your device, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this yeah. is certainly a step above it, but it's that type of a technology. And they've written an algorithm that can be used with any scanning machine, as they call it. And what this is, is it's a tool that can identify the errors and the scan measurements and remove them in pretty much real time. And it's increased, as you say, 4,500% precision for much more accurate results. So I think we're going to see that coming soon in the updates to all of these different apps. So what, it, what's, what company has done this? Who, who made this? Or do you know? Um, it's a university team. Oh. Um, the University of Manchester specifically. And it's, again, being released as a free algorithm that can be included in any scanning machine. So it also, if you're working on this type of technology, you don't have to pay to use it. That's oh, cool. That's nice. Solar device generates electricity and desalinates water with no waste brine, LA, yeah. California. Well, actually, I'm mm-hmm. thinking anywhere that has coastal communities right now could use yeah. something like this. So, 
again, an advance in technology. It's a solar panel. It's a device that attaches to that. It lowers the temperature by about 10%, which increases the energy production from the solar panel. Plus, going through that process is able to essentially to remove the salt from the water. Now, you do still have the salt brime. I mean, it's not going to disintegrate, of course, but it's separated. and You don't have any other chemicals in there. So the water that comes out is, is clean water, and then you also would have the salt. But it does seem like right now, especially with the drought, as you say, L.A. and in California and really everywhere. I mean, it was 115 degrees here in the Portland area this week. Yeah. Um, having access to water like that is going to become more and more important as it becomes more and more scarce. I know a lot of the farmers and things in the areas of California that produce a lot of our food are having to decide on what fields lay fallow. There's even farmers in the Sacramento area that are selling their water because the water is worth more than the product they would produce with it. Jeez. So this is a th definitely a thing where I think technology can help here. And something like this and these type of approaches are actually a pretty big deal and something that if it works properly and it was widely deployed, could make a big difference. So who made this device or do you know? Um, let's see. The device was made. I'll see if it's in their press release here. Uh, it's a thing in physics world where it talks about it. Oh. And uh, it looks like, again, it was uh, developed at a university um, in Saudi Arabia. Oh, okay. Uh, that's nice. That, that actually cool. makes sense yeah. because they're a desert climate. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. And the device is called an evaporative crystallizer. Windows approved a driver booby-trapped with a rootkit malware. Yeah, this headline's about what it sounds like. They approved <laughs> the driver and the driver had a rootkit. Malware program built into it. Um, <laughs> just goes Yay. to show this can happen anywhere. And, you know, it's not, we're picking on Microsoft because that's the latest one here. And we're going to be talking about Windows 11 a little later in the show, too, dealing with some of this stuff and what's going on. But we are actually seeing this type of thing. Apple's approved a few apps that have malware in them. And certainly see them on the Google platform. I mean, it's just something the bad guys will do whatever they can to get around the reviews and that type of thing. The staffing and everything that a lot of these different organizations that are doing the reviews is less this year due to the pandemic. So all of a sudden, they are you know, coming up with a way to work around the existing things that are in place to try to prevent this type of a thing. And uh, definitely, you know, and the question again is, what can you do to avoid this? Not a whole lot, because you're certainly not going to look online every time you update a driver that's supposed to come from its you know, purported source. Yeah. So it does make it... Uh, make it a little more difficult here. But I again, I think we're going to see a lot of this kind of stuff going forward. There's certainly going to be the attempt. I'm sure Microsoft is going to try to put some more things into place to prevent this kind of thing from happening. But there is always that potential. New AI gives coding suggestions to software developers. Yep. I would love to hear these. <laughs> I don't think it's a voice. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's written. It's written. And uh, oh, okay. I certainly have my days where this could be interesting. Talk about arguing with the computer. <laughs> so what this is, is it's a thing for a platform called Git, G-I-T. Uh -huh. uh, this is a platform that was recently purchased by Microsoft that allows for storage and distribution of code. It uh, handles revision management, that type of thing. So if you have multiple programmers, it's designed so that you don't overwrite each other's changes and it's able to coordinate all of that. Well, this next step, the AI that they're putting in here actually allows the idea of the AI being able to give you suggestions and even write its own code in some cases. And So, sorry, Dave, I don't think that's a good idea. Yes, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> it feels like that's where it's headed. The, 
companies involved, <laughs> Microsoft, of course, OpenAI is the company that makes the AI. And the recommendations work in pretty much any programming language out there, most popular being JavaScript, Python, and TypeScript. Although I already know that it does other languages. <laughs> and <Cool>. uh, <laughs> as long as it's not a sarcastic clippy, I think it'll be great. Yeah, it's not a sarcastic clippy, and it's not the Microsoft paperclip from Office a few years ago. Okay, that yeah. question was that's... being asked too. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's just it's just what we want, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's just what we need. Um, you know, but anyway, I think at the end of the day, they're calling it the GitHub Copilot. And at the end of the day, something like this actually could make life a lot easier. It just depends on how it's implemented. I know I just had a big fight with my uh, development environment. I updated it. I used NetBeans, which is a really good open source IDE. But um, it was uh, putting up, again, all these suggestions. And every time I'd write a light in the code, it would say, well, you should put a comment here. No, I don't want to put a comment here. And after about two hours of that, um, <laughs> let's just let's just say I ha I'm glad I have a private office. Did you um, tell the busybody to shut up and yeah. from the back seat? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, definitely in there. And then I went in and figured out how to turn it off. Um, mm. But it, it was definitely definitely getting a little bit irritating. Now that's not an AI, and what they're doing with Get is so. First of okay. all, that's going to be a very different um, approach. Yeah, you know, to be able to deal with that. And I think it's something that will, and it seems, already seems to work a lot better. So we'll see where that goes. But if you hear someone screaming in the Portland area about programming, you'll know why. Hmm. So I don't understand this one, but apparently stir slash shaken required this week. Yeah. And I've always thought this was a really weird name for what this is. Stir slash shaken is the name of the protocol that has been developed now for a couple of years. It's, it's being required as of actually last Wednesday. And what it is, is it's so that the caller ID on your phone has to authenticate and actually be correct for the person that's calling. Oh, oh so what this has okay. to do with yeah. robocalls and caller ID spoofing, you know, and all that kind of stuff, which has uh, been a huge problem. And uh, a lot of, you know, pretty much anybody that has a phone can attest to this. I was, I was hoping James Bond was going to show up and take the robocallers out. Yeah, so, uh, you know... I, I was going to say, it sounded like a martini recipe, but, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of people, I think, that probably agree with you on that note, but that's what this is. So we got a great show for you this cool. week. We're going to be talking again about Windows 11, and we're going to be looking at fake reviews. That's been a huge problem lately. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Hey, we got something else for you to check out. We do Tech Wednesday every week, and you can get that in your Amazon Alexa flash briefing. Just add User Friendly 2.0 to your skills. So, question that has come in from listeners this week, we've had a lot of these, and it's been in the news, is the whole idea of fake reviews. And we've talked about this in the past, but it's something that's really coming up and starting to create a lot of problems. And this hits sites like Google, Amazon, Yelp any of these different places that deal with this kind of thing. Now, I don't know, Jeremy, Gretchen, do you use reviews when you buy stuff on a site like Amazon? Yeah. Yeah, every now and then. I mean, not always, but when I need a review, I'd really like it to be accurate. You know, reviews have been one of the things that have been put into place to replace the idea of being able to go to a store and actually look at something in person. 
So yeah. you can't do that online, of course. Brick and mortar, that's one advantage they will always have. So the idea is let's see what everybody else thinks of the product. And what everybody else thinks of it determines whether it's going to sell well or not. Yeah. So there's a uh, whole industry out there to do fake reviews. Go ahead, Gretchen. I was just going to say, when I look at reviews, I look to see um, if it if it's a clothing item, does it run big, small? Mm-hmm. Uh, were people happy with the quality? You know, did they when they arrived, did they feel like it was something they were going to keep using? Um, so if somebody says the sizes aren't, you know, are they running small or large? Then I might order a different size. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So some of these can be very helpful. And I'll tell you something. This, this is a personal story, something that I'm actually aware of with this. And it's happened a couple of times. We get a lot of equipment and different things sent to the show that we try out. And the idea is to review it on the show. And that kind of stuff is no problem. You know, when we do it, we disclose where it came from and we're still able to be honest on whether we liked it or not and all of that. But there have been a couple of times where it'll be formatted as, here's a new product, buy it, and when you post a positive review on Amazon or whatever, we will refund the money that you paid for it by PayPal. Oh. Okay. So <laughs> That's basically paying you to give them a, re- a good review. Yeah, they're buying a, they're buying a good review, and that's exactly what it is. And the question in is, did I do it? I did it once. I wanted to see if it would actually happen. And knowing that I had bought the item originally through Amazon, I would have simply returned it anyway, which ultimately I did. But they really did do this. And so other things coming in conceivably would work the same way. Uh, The item was specifically a smart light bulb. Um, And by the way, it wasn't very good. And I did delete the review after I got through kind of testing this out to see if it would work. But the issue that's coming up here is that kind of a thing's going on. There's also freelance websites like Upwork and those kind of things where they actually go out to try to hire people to write reviews and do a lot of them. So I have a new product. It's on whatever retailer. So we're going to go in and, and do a whole bunch of fake reviews so that the, you, when you look at it, it looks like this is you know the greatest thing since sliced bread type of thing. Uh-huh. But in fact, it's not. I know one of the things that I really use reviews for myself is on electronic items because there's so many knockoffs out there. You want to see if something actually works or not. Absolutely. People are happy with it or not, you know, that kind of a thing. And at the end of the day, if the reviews are fake, it makes them completely useless. Now, I actually, I don't do a lot of reviews myself. Um, Like, uh, uh, but I do do the Google, the Google ones. Like if you visited a location, right? I will do those. But I'm very like, well, this is what the place is like. Uh, This is the good part. Uh, This is the bad part. and and people seem to like my reviews, but I don't, I know I'm not doing it to be popular or anything. I just want to give out factual information. So yeah, that's kind of frustrating to see mm-hmm. that, you know, they're paying people. Yeah. That's well, some people who don't like something will get them and all their friends to go and write a, a one star review on how horrible the product was, even though they never did it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, a, that's know. another side of it. I've seen that on Yelp and a lot of stuff. So, on that end, here's the kind of fake reviews that they're seeing out there. First okay. coming from vendors, a product vendor that sells both positive and negative online reviews. Usually what this is is positive for their product, but they'll also hire people to write fake negative reviews for their competitor. Uh-huh. Business owners directly or indirectly generating fake reviews for themselves. Again, this is like the vendor idea, but it's the business owner doing it. You see this sometimes in restaurants and that type of a thing. Current employees writing positive reviews on behalf of an employer. There's been some issues with this. If you work for our company, we want you to write a review. 
And it's implied that if you don't, you won't work for our company anymore. So, you know, going that direction can be extremely problematic. And then the other end of that, ex-employee is writing negative reviews and retaliation for being terminated or laid off. So you also see this type of a thing out there. Customers lying about or exaggerating a negative experience to obtain a refund or some other benefit like a discount. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely something that can happen. Oh, this doesn't work. And a lot of times, especially on platforms like eBay, I've seen this. Amazon does it too. There are certain things out there that it's not worth doing a return. So what ends up happening is they'll just refund your money if you complain about it in some cases and not actually have you ship it back because that process would cost more than just throwing it away. Well, of course, there's people out there that have caught on to this and figured Uh out, hey, I can get free product if I complain about it. And then they do, but the review stays out there, you know. And then the other thing is the review clusters, friends and family writing positive or negative reviews within a short period of one another. So these are the ideas of what they're seeing out there. And they're saying that this is in the millions. Mm-hmm. If you were to figure it out across sites, there's really not a lot of uh, documentation on how many fake reviews are actually out there. But I know when you're looking online, some of them are a little more obvious. You can kind of go, okay, this is, you know, this is yeah. a little bit weird. A normal review profile for a product, first of all, would be more than just a couple. And the yeah. second thing to look at is, is the reviewer, is this their first review? I mean, you know, or is it something where they've written other reviews? And usually you can go and look at the other reviews and be able to see if some are positive and some are negative. That's a real person, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Some of the review sites actually take it to the next step. This is something I do, too. Uh, like Yelp has a program called Elite. And this is where they've gone through and kind of juried some of the people that write reviews to make sure that that individual is a real person. They also, COVID's kind of shut this down, but normally hold events where you can get together in your local community, meet other reviewers, that kind of thing. So it's something that's they've taken a step further to uh, help to ensure that those reviews have a little bit more of a trustworthy value. They've written algorithms to try to take off some of the fake reviews. But I also know the other end of it, and Jeremy, you were talking about this too, is sometimes when organizations get in the news for, say, a political reason or something, Mm-hmm. Then you'll have a whole bunch of people go on and write positive or negative, depending on whatever their opinion is of what happened. And that can cause all kinds of problems, too. Now, again, using Yelp as an example here, they have an algorithm in it. And what it'll do is start is it'll stop the reviews when it starts sensing this is happening and throw up a warning that this organization has been subject of a recent newscast or whatever it is. And the reviews right now are being held. <laughs> so this is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. This is the section of the show where you ask questions and we endeavor to give you answers. The way you send us your questions, you can give us a call, 503-766-6264, one user-friendly on Facebook or Twitter, or userfriendlyshow.com. What are our questions this week? What is Slack? Yeah, listener question here, and this term's heard a lot of times, and if you're not a programmer, you might not be as familiar with it. This is a Microsoft-owned system that is used primarily by programmers for chatting while on programming projects. And it has a number of features built into it for programming beyond just that. So it's an oversimplification. But I've used Slack a lot when dealing with teams 
where we're working and want to be able to send messages and kind of just jump in and out of what we're doing. And it also allows you to share code and has rooms and a number of other things. But it's something that's definitely earmarked or focused on that area of the audience to program with. Hmm. Is it true that Zoom can translate languages in real time? Yeah, another listener question. I looked into this because this sounds kind of interesting. It can't do it right now. However, they're working with an AI to be able to do this. So what this actually is described as is a function where, let's say uh, you speak German and I speak English, okay? And you can speak in German and I'll hear you in English. And if I speak in English, you'll hear me in German. So kind of like a universal translator. Yeah. Sounds cool. Uh, idea. And if they can make this work, it would be really cool. And they're talking about actually having something where it goes. And I know that these kind of functions work already on smartphones. You can do this a little bit. It's not perfect. But um, it is definitely something that has been worked on for a while. And now we're getting to a point where we're actually going to see it in real time, hopefully. So we'll keep you apprised on what happens there. Okay. Is Starlink working? Elon Musk's internet system, actually, they're expecting 500,000 users by this time next year. So, yes, they are up and running. You can get on there with a beta test right now. It costs about $600 to get involved. Wow. It's working Jeez. in a number of different parts of the world. Satellite-based internet that's actually fast. The people that have it, for the most part, seem to like it. Cool. So something kind of interesting. They are testing in markets that already have internet access, although the ultimate goal of this is to be able to use it in places that you can't get high-speed data or it's difficult to get right now using a conventional connection like a landline, cable modem, that type of a thing. I look at it from a standpoint that it's actually going to offer something that we don't already have and maybe gives a little more competition to the online internet world, which is kind of a good thing. The negative on this, of course, is that they're launching lots and lots and lots of satellites, and there's hmm. concern about how much equipment is in orbit. Yeah, can imagine. Uh, what is going on with Discovery and Warner Brothers? Another listener question that uh, came in about a week ago. This has been talked about in the news a lot. So basically... 10,000-foot explanation for this is that Discovery Networks and Warner Brothers are merging. So to take this a step further, what's going on here is that AT&T bought Warner Brothers a couple of years ago. And for some reason, they decided to do that. A lot of people questioned that decision, but Comcast and others in that era were wanting to get into content ownership as well as being able to distribute it presumably to be able to offer exclusive things on their online platforms. AT&T never did too well with it. In fact, they lost something like $100 billion in value on Warner Brothers over the three years <clears throat> that they had it. Wow. So they decided to turn around and sell it. So they're creating this new merged company, which is Discovery Networks, that offers all the DIY, home garden, all that kind of stuff. And Warner Brothers, with their content library, is one company that's going to be spun off. Now, the deal with this is, is they want to create a streaming platform that's able to compete with something like Netflix and have enough content to be able to do it. And in all honesty, this is uh, something that probably will work. So we'll see where this goes. What did you buy at Amazon Prime this year? <laughs> you know, not a lot this year. Did you guys buy anything on Prime? Actually, I did because um, I was bummed out that my laptop had to be sent away for repair. So I wanted something to look forward to. Right. You know, that sounds pathetic. And I am still waiting for my stuff to arrive. Um, 
I really thought they would have shown up quicker. It's interesting. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I did get one of the items that I picked out, and so far it, it's it's a pair of earrings, and they seem to be okay. And uh, I'm waiting for the other items to show up. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I bought a bunch of 3D printer stuff, so I'm cool. Did you get it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've gotten my stuff, too. I just got some uh, Fire TV and that type of a thing. So we'll have to see where your stuff is. All right, this is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We've been getting a lot of questions about something. Windows 11. You ready for an upgrade? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That seems to be about 90% of the opinions that have been coming in. Now, you know, talking about this a little bit, um, I'm a part of the Windows Developers Program, so I've been able to see this and run it a little bit. And honestly, when I first loaded it, I liked it. it. It actually looks pretty good. They're doing some stuff that makes a lot of sense. It's going to be a lot more secure, but some of the questions that have been coming in, some of the information that I've been trying to get, adds a little bit to the recipe here. Now, one of the things, Jeremy, and I'm going to let you talk about this because you found it, is the compatibility issues or potential compatibility issues. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You're going to have uh, problems trying to, you know, they want you to be able to have your um internet access right get on to get it to, to start it up right i mean so if i'm outside without a range of my internet i can't use it so let's actually start there and then we can go yeah, on to compatibility that, issues so that really bothers me yeah, yeah so, me okay too. so what you're actually talking about is this idea that you have to have an online account to log into your computer and this is something that, uh, in reading some of the feedback on it, it's been quite negative, uh, to put it mm-hmm. mildly. Mm-hmm. I am not entirely sure this isn't already the case. And I've been trying to figure that out. I know that in an update that came out recently, there was something that was changed with that. You can still get into your user management, but if you try to log on ever since then, you're not online, it'll still let you log in from the cached information that was in there, which that's not new. But it seemed like it changed over. And I know that on Active Directory, on some of the uh, corporate systems where you have Windows Server and that type of a thing, you still have user management, but that became a little more challenging to even set up on that front. And for remote access, if you log on remotely, you would still have to have internet access to be able to authenticate that account. So taking this a step further, which is what it sounds like they're doing, is to be able to log on at all you would have to be online. Now, the one thing that I have not been able to get an answer from anywhere is what happens, actually, if you're not on the Internet and try to connect. Will it still let you on with a previous cached information like now? Do you physically lose access to your computer? Which in of itself would be really bad because that means if you had a problem with your Internet, you could conceivably not be able to fix it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and on top of it, sometimes um, you just want to unplug from the world work on your artwork, work on your writing. Maybe you're behind on certain things and you just need to be away from the internet and not on. Yeah. And this is forcing people into a situation where their machine, their Dell, their ThinkPad, their whatever it is, 
will not work. Their computer, the thing that they purchased, will not work. And that's not right. Yeah. So we're going to have to see what that actually ends up being. In the pre-release, it doesn't do that. So it's a question of where they're actually going to go with this, which brings me to the next thing is compatibility. And what that is, is that the final release of this, from what I understand, will only run on an eighth generation processor or newer, which means that some equipment that was bought that's capable of running Windows 10 can't run Windows 11. That Mm -hmm. seems weird. Even though it's capable of it from a technical standpoint. Now, Microsoft is locking down a lot of things with this. You have to have a special secure BIOS system and some other things, trusted platform, different things like that to be able to work. And they're doing that partially because of a lot of the hacks and different things that have happened lately. So they do want to make the operating system a lot more secure. And the older processors before version 8 for about 20 years have had a new a known uh, rootkit exploit. That's at least what it's called where people can get in and actually get command access to the CPU using the right set of malware or that type of thing and be able to get around it. So version 8 fixed that, or 8th generation, and going forward you didn't have that problem anymore. So I think that's part of what's playing into that. It also doesn't require those minimums if you do virtualization, like run it on a virtual machine. So that, as long as it boots, it will work on that without a problem at all. Now, the pre-release version doesn't have those restrictions in it yet. So Mm. it's totally possible that you can run the pre-release on a computer that won't run the final version, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Now, I have a feeling that Microsoft might change this a little bit in the final version because so many people are complaining about it. And the other part of it, too, is from an environmental standpoint, this type of thing does generate a lot of e-waste. Because all mm-hmm. of a sudden, you have all kinds of people replacing equipment that doesn't really need to be replaced because of these arbitrary limitations that are built into the new operating system. It may also cause hardships for people who can't afford to buy new equipment. Yeah. You know, your equipment still works great. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the software's just kind of like put an axe in it. Yeah, because they had some arbitrary limit and decided yeah. that if your computer doesn't have a specific chip in it, it won't run. And so you have a lot of kids who might be using older laptops to be able to do their schoolwork, and their families may have struggled to just get that old laptop for them, so and ask, now it doesn't work. Let me ask you a question here, just to be devil's advocate on this. Which mm-hmm. is more important, what you just said, or not getting hacked? If you had the to make a choice is- between the two, which one would you choose? Okay, looking at it from that point of view, there's always going to be hackers. They're not going away. And you've even said yourself that no system is foolproof. You can make it really good, but it is never going to be absolutely foolproof. And and the aspect that you might not be looking at is what if you really, you know, the old laptop is what you can afford. And it's either that for the kid to do schoolwork or you don't get food. Or the or kid doesn't get educated. Or you can't pay rent or yeah. something like that because that is happening. Yeah. But understood. But to keep that working, now everybody else that uses Windows can't have a secure environment. Well, my first first question is, is why haven't they been able to secure it better before? Well, because again, I mean, do they have to have version 8 of the CPU? There's an actual hardware problem. Okay. That's now it makes sense. Now, okay. It's just difficult to go through when when you have limitations. All right, let's go on a problem-solving direction. Um 
is there a way that some of these manufacturers who created the crappy CPU, can they offer a discount on upgraded CPUs? Yeah, and that's a good question. By the way, the company is Intel. And uh, okay. It's no secret mm-hmm. uh, where this came from. They, uh, <laughs> okay, see. <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I know there's different companies that do things, yeah, and I didn't yeah. want to make any assumptions. And I'm not sure. I don't think AMD has the same problem, but I know that previous to the eighth generation of the Intel CPU, they had this. Now, all of that being said, like I said, I was playing devil's advocate. Now, my personal feeling, and I will offer this opinion here, is to keep the backward compatibility. And it's for the reason that you mentioned, Gretchen, is very simple. Security is like a lock on the front door. And the reality of the situation is, is that you're never going to be able to keep the bad guys out completely. It just, it, it's not something that is an option or something that, that absolutely exists out there. And while it's secure now, they most likely will figure out another way in. And the other solution to this that I came up with that they wouldn't answer my question on is why not have it locked down and be secure eighth generation and newer, but still offer backward compatibility with a warning for the older generation. So we'll keep you up to date on what's going on with Windows 11, but it's going to be out here in about a year, actually this fall. So it will be a thing pretty soon. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Great show this week. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to ask you a question. The good, the bad, the weird. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) This was Gretchen's fault, actually. (laughs) Well, you see, I've got that laptop that's not here. So I'm trying to find other ways to keep myself occupied. And um, I really loved the good, the bad, and the ugly by Sergio Leone, you right. know, the, the, the classic Western. So I like that. And so I thought, well, why don't I give this one a shot? And this one's kind of an Asian twist on, on this whole story. Yes, it, it's not a spaghetti Western. It's a kimchi Western. Okay. <laughs> they, actually, the, the, the director, uh, Kim Ji-Woon, called it a kimchi Western because it's spicy like they're, you know. Okay. And so it's, I guess it's basically Korean because yeah, it seems a, like a lot of the characters are Korean. Mm-hmm. There are some Japanese, I think, characters who I think were speaking Japanese. It's got subtitles. Right, okay. But there is enough action that goes on a lot like the Sergio Leone um, story where you can kind of figure out what's going on. So if you don't see all of the text, you'll you'll get the idea. Mm-hmm. All right, well, this... Uh, Definitely sounds interesting. It was fun. Uh, kind yeah. of strange, but a lot of fun. Yes, right. 1940s Manchuria. You've got a couple of bounty hunters and a, and a thief. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, I thought it was pretty cool. I only caught like the last half of it, but it was still pretty good. <laughs> so is this family friendly? Is it something you should wait until? Uh, no, I don't think I would show that to my kids. Okay. <laughs> There's right. some things in there that are kind of owie and no, no, no. Yeah, well, let's get to note such things. You don't want to be surprised um, all of that yeah. does happen. So, <laughs> all righty, well, we'll check it out. And if anybody watches this, let us know. And on this note, it looks like we're going to start being able to do movie reviews here in the next couple of weeks again, which is kind of cool, reopening the theaters, so be able to get back into that and uh, be able to bring you the latest, greatest of what's going on in that arena. Upcoming events, we've got the Game Developers Conference here in a couple of weeks. It's going to be virtual this year, July 19th through 23rd, although we'll be covering it. 
a lot of different things going on. It looks like they've got a nice show put together. Black Hat, our first physical convention in over a year and a half. Mm. July 31st, August 5th. Chaz is going to be taking care of that's down in Las Vegas. And then our first physical convention is going to be the Silicon, formerly the Silicon Valley Comic Con at the end of August. So definitely looking forward to that. Jeremy, are you bringing your stuff you've done th- with the Makers Workshops this year? Yes, I'll be bringing my uh, my cardboard helmet and my uh, foam gauntlets. I that haven't finished good. mine. We can finish the foam gauntlets. We got time. We get you know month. Uh-huh. Uh, you do. You actually you've got seven <laughs> weeks. So, so we're getting pretty close there. That sounds like not as much as is two months. You know, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, looking forward to looking forward to being able to get back to these things and be able to actually have some coverage from that again. It's going to be definitely be a busy fall. Until then, this is user friendly two keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0, copyright 2014 to 2021, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting provided by WeAreTechnology.com. Podcasts available at UserFriendlyNation.com, TheAnswerPortland.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.